I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. You know the feeling, the one you sometimes crave, sometimes experience, but somehow always struggle to name. It's feeling that your disabled body is just a little safer with this other person. Disability activist Mia Mingus coined the term access intimacy to discuss this feeling. It's a sense that someone else just gets it when it comes to your access needs. And access intimacy is at the heart of the disability arts community. It's disabled people and their allies working, creating, and playing together to push the boundaries of what is possible in theater and the performing arts. They'll make you laugh, cry, and feel as though you are talking to your best friend. That's why theater by and for the disability community matters quite so much. Today, we discuss disability arts. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome back to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta, as I said just a minute ago. It's good to have you with us. And if you listen to the show often, you know that when we talk about inclusion in theater or film or television for people with disabilities, I often frame those conversations in terms of disability representation. And that's an important conversation to have, but I think we've had that conversation many times before on the program. So I wanted a different starting point. I wanted to ask, what does it mean to be part of a disability arts community for the people involved in that community? And what does a disabled-centered theater practice, for example, bring to the work of disability justice as a whole. To try and help me answer some of these questions, I'm joined by a very exciting guest. Jessica Watkin is a PhD student at the Center for Drama, Theater and Performance Studies at the University of Toronto. Her research is engaged in disability artists and the way they create performance. She is a blind multidisciplinary artist, accessibility designer, disability dramaturg and educator. Jessica recently edited Interdependent Magic, Disability Performance in Canada. And she's joined us today to talk about some of her work as well as the recently published anthology. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. It's really nice to have you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Jessica, in a world which seems to value independence so much, why are you making a case for interdependence in your book? Wow. I mean, that that is the question, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like so much of growing up here in Canada um, as, you know, a young woman, I, I was kind of trained to be independent, to figure out our lives as, you know, before I was disabled as a young woman. And then as I became blind when I was around 14, I realized that, you know, a lot of the stories we are told in school um, from our parents is that we're preparing to become an independent citizen, a member of society, um, and that we need to be able to, quote, live on our own or live without, without anybody else's help. Um, and then when I, when I gained my blindness um, in around 2010, I remember realizing that, oh, I have to, I have to ask for help a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, I actually think it is, um, it is a, it's not true. It's a fairy tale, actually that we, anybody, not just disabled people, but that anybody moves through this world, quote unquote, independently. We're always asking for people's help. 
not everybody is a doctor and they can't heal all wounds. We do have to go to the hospital or the doctor sometimes. We do have to go to the grocery store. We don't, we don't you know, grow our own food. So mm-hmm. when we think about independence, um, I actually think of it as almost like a limiting practice. I find interdependence, mm-hmm. relying on more people, um, allowing, you know, for my resources to be abundant and grow because I support other folks. Um, that to me is so expansive and so opening. And, you know, as somebody who out of necessity and disability have had to rely on other people, you know, as a blind person, relying on my way around the city, for example, or, um, you know, you mentioned I was a PhD student, writing all of my papers without being able to see the screen or see my words. I, I have an editor who helps me read my words. It doesn't mean I don't write them myself, but it means that, you know, there's somebody who they use their eyes and I use my brain and in collaboration we get there. And I think that that is, that is the, the piece of resistance of interdependent magic, that it is magic and it is, it is one of those feelings of you can only get stronger. I don't want to take too much time away from talking about the book because there's so much to discuss, but how did you discover theater or did theater find you? Mm, uh, um, I mean, when I was very young, I was brought to the Princess of Wales Theater here in Toronto. I lived in a small town, North Ontario, and I mm. was brought as like a four-year-old bean to see theater. Um, I saw Beauty and the Beast was my first show. And I remember looking at the stage and in the moment where the prince becomes the beast, uh, you know, I thought it was magical. And I, got, I fell in love with this idea that, that performance is, is powerful and, and, and potent. And I think that uh, as I kind of moved through school as an elementary school age person, I was like always interested in choir and performing. And then, you know, as I got into high school and, and I gained my blindness, I still loved theater um, and loved being in drama classes and being in animating of these ideas these stories and so as I as I went into undergrad as my undergraduate degree was at Guelph um, I started as an English major and I slowly found myself in the theater department because I found myself being able to offer different perspectives there was never a blind person in these theater mm-hmm. spaces before and so I was able to ch- ch- make really interesting creative changes not just for accessibility reasons but creative changes um, that were steeped in you know aesthetics um, and in, in practices that I don't think my colleagues, peers, and teachers had experienced before at Guelph. And so I think, you know, having had that love of storytelling for so long and then moving into my undergrad where I had a bit more agency as, as a young adult and, and moving into my 20s, I felt like I could try things out a little bit more. And I feel like that was about the time when I realized wow, I could actually do something here in theater. I could find different ways to move and be. And, you know, since then, I, I found, I, I feel like I keep creating my own job every time I walk into a theater <laughs> space. Um, but I actually think, you know, that's, that's a positive offshoot of, of being included in these spaces. And so I can only, only keep kind of walking into a space and seeing the ways and seeing, joke, pun intended, can't really see the different ways to make changes. But, but that's the point, right? Is that I keep being... <laughs> welcomed into those spaces. So yeah, it's been kind of a lifelong endeavor, but really Mm -hmm. intensely over the past 12 years. And in the book, you make a distinction between disability arts and disability theater versus accessible arts in theater. What is the distinction you're trying to get at? Mm, Great question. Uh, Yeah, I think there's a conflation between accessibility and making things accessible for an audience. 
um, which is what I mean by accessible theater. So that's, you know, that's going to Stratford and that they have audio description offered. Um, if I think the Stratford Festival here in Toronto, if you sign up with 25 blind people, they will make that performance, uh, the audio described performance. So mm-hmm. that is accessible theater. Um, and so, you know, we have all kinds of those, you know, relaxed performance, captioning, ASL interpretation, there's all kinds of different flavors of accessible theater. But the thing about accessible theater is that it's not necessarily driven or created by or led by disabled people. Um, mm-hmm. It's normally allies, which is fabulous. We love allies. Um, we love when folks care about making things accessible for us. However, disability theater, and this is something that I think in the ways that I'm thinking about it is a little bit newer in the last few years, but disability theater is created by and for disabled people. So that means there are disabled people in the director's seat, on stage, backstage, front of house. It doesn't just mean they're in the audience, which is normally the distinction between something that's accessible and something that's created for and by disabled people, in my opinion, and especially within the theater. So sometimes that means it's a disability theater piece. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, there's a show at Theatre Pastamari called Crippled. Theatre Pastamari, the theatre, isn't necessarily a disability-led theatre, but the show is. And so it's kind of a little bit of both, accessible theatre and disability theatre, because it kind of mixes that disabled people on stage and as well as being welcoming to disabled people in the audience. So really, it's just about who, where the disabled people are in the space and what kind of power um, they have over the dis- creative and production dis- decisions in the theatre space. In the book, there are four plays, uh, four scripts, although you don't like to call them scripts, for people with disabilities whose work is highlighted in the anthology. Tell us a little more about what those are and how you made the decision about who to approach to include their work in the anthology. So making decisions, um, choosing who to include in what I believe is the first uh, anthology of disability plays in Canada uh, was very difficult to do because mm-hmm. there are so many disabled artists and Canada is the second biggest country in the world. We have so many different artists from Newfoundland all the way across um, to the West Coast. And so trying to figure out who, who, quote unquote, what is the best play to represent disability and deaf theater is very difficult. Um, and so actually how I... Well, talk a little bit about how I made those decisions. And to be perfectly honest, it came from my research. Um, it mm-hmm. came from who I had spent, you know, I'm in my sixth year of my PhD now. I'm defending this year. I'll be, a, I'll be Dr. Watkin the next time you talk to me. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, I, I, I spent, I've been spending six years with some of these artists, Alex Bulmer, blind artist, mm-hmm. um, the Boys in Chairs Collective, who are uh, gay, wheelchair-using men, um, all incredible artists. Cyrus Marcus Ware, um, one of my uh, beloved uh, case studies for my dissertation as well. So those three were kind of easy because they were people that I had been thinking about, talking to, um, think, you know, creating different ways to identify their work. And so it was, it was natural to then extend, okay, thank you so much for providing so much fodder for my dissertation. Can I offer you this publication to animate your work and, and solidify it, you know, within the archive of Canadian theatre? And then it, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I need, a, I need a deaf play, which is always kind of the way it goes with disability mm-hmm. and deafness. Um, deaf artists are so, capital B deaf artists, deaf culture is so steeped in, in tradition and protocol, but also in pride and joy. So it's very important for me to find the right deaf play to go here. And Chris Dodd and I have met a few times, and he is the artistic director of the uh, Canada's 
deaf theater festival called Sound Off, which happens in Edmonton, Alberta every year. And so his play Deafy was really natural to kind of fit in. It was about the experience of being deaf, about um, deafness in relation to disability and just relation to society. And so I think I, after, after all of this, um, choosing these plays was really important to me to think of what are the kinds of stories they're telling, what are the kind of explorations of disability are they telling. Um, most of these plays are very queer. Um, a lot of these plays talk about sex, they talk about relationships. And, you know, a part of that is that that's the natural storytelling of disabled folks is, is that we are always kind of in, in certain kinds of margins. And so it's not surprising to me that there are different intersections um, coming up throughout this work. And so, yeah, that's how I made the decisions. And the other part of, of making these decisions about who to choose is also um, recognizing that a lot of disabled people through a pandemic, as well as before the pandemic, have not the same amount of capacity as a non-disabled person to provide a publication or to work mm -hmm. on editing a publication. And so I will acknowledge that there were certain artists who I worked with for years on contributing to this publication and because of pandemic and crisis and other things, were unable to actually contribute. And so another part I, I want to always say <laughs> whenever I talk about the book is that it's also my intention to continue to work with Canadian publishers, Playwrights Canada Press, who did this anthology and others, to diversify and continue to publish the work of disabled artists in theatre and performance. So the amount of lists I've sent over to the, to the publishers at PCP to say, okay, like, now don't forget about these artists. And so anybody who I couldn't include, um, I'm continuing to advocate on their behalf to, mm -hmm. to be archived and to be published as well. It, it's so hard to make choices, right? You got to you got to choose some and leave some out, which I hate, but you have to do that naturally. One of the things that shows the interdependence in the book, Jessica, is um, the introductions to the four plays. Some you contribute and others you, in fact, reach out to uh, colleagues in the in the disability arts space to write introductions to uh, the four to two out of the four plays, not to mention the interview uh, that is included in the book. Why was it so important for you to seed the space and, and, and allow others to introduce some of the work? There's something about framing storytelling that I find very powerful. Um, a lot of my introductions offer context, but also offer a personal connection. And that's something that was really important to me and important within disability arts, I'm sure, um, and disability period, is that this kind of welcoming, friendly nature um, is part of the practice of being a part of the disability community. And so, um, you know, framing is really important for me. Um, and then reaching out to other folks who can, who can speak and write and, and offer context and storytelling by way of what these artists are also offering. So, for example, mm -hmm. um, I reached out to my colleague Yusuf Kadura to introduce Antarctica by Cyrus Marcus Ware. Yusuf uh, is a disabled artist, but also was one of the performers of Antarctica. And so I was really interested, you know, him as a, as a disabled artist of color, as a performer from the show, as another disabled artist colleague of mine. I was really interested in his perspective on, you know, what, what are what is the importance of including this play within this context of this anthology? And similarly, um, introducing Jesse, I have Dr. Janelle Rose, who who is a is a who is a deaf person. It made sense for me to have a deaf person introduce the deaf mm -hmm. play because as much as as much as I can speak to it and speak to my connection with Chris, again, it's it's offering that context and storytelling that's steeped in an understanding of the culture that I don't have. And again, that's part of my practice as both a curator, editor, scholar, person, life, you know, human, is, is to, you know, to recognize my own 
my own privilege. Um, I'm a white settler. I'm, I, I can offer context for disability, but I would love to offer the space and, and take up more space um, within the things that I do create to offer the people who are culturally with lived experience to offer that context. And so that was that was really how and why I made those decisions. And, you know, as I move forward, I think that it's it's almost even more. I, I would love to reach out to the artists and ask, who would you like to um, to introduce your work? Would one of you like to do it? Would, would you like me to do it? I think, like, there's more in that capacity to be expansive. And, and like you say, it's an interdependent practice. It relies on context and storytelling from so many different people. And, and to me, that offers that kind of beautiful mosaic um, experience of disability, which which I do think um, both the cover of this book, which was by YJ Koo, who created, you know, a mosaic style uh, two hands offering uh, something towards the person who's viewing the cover. I think it kind of all fits together in this interdependent way. Um, and so, yeah, it was really important for me to diversify whose voices were doing that contextual work. In the introduction to the anthology, you talk about the soft edges of the disability arts community, a place where you can all be vulnerable together. How important is, how important is vulnerability when you're an artist and a creator? Well, you, you said it at the top of, top of this interview. You were quoting Access Intimacy, and I've been thinking about Access Intimacy a lot in relation to disability arts, and I, I think that vulnerability comes underneath that umbrella of Access Intimacy, of feeling familiar and safety um, and comfort and um, feeling the vulnerability, the ease of being able to ask for what you need. I think that truly, that is the core crux and, and, you know, smoldering fire of the disability arts community. And what I mean by those soft edges is that we can feel as a disabled person, I feel comfortable enough to ask for my needs to be met and possibly needs that I compromise in other spaces. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, as a disabled person, I'm sure other folks listening um, can feel, you know, that's, that's a huge thing to be able to ask without feeling scared that you're going to be made fun of or rejected because it's too much money or X, Y, or Z. When in, within disability arts community, that's what I've received. Um, and as, you know, I came into this community in 2017, um, I came into it through a leadership summit and I was terrified and I remember leaving that summit sobbing bawling because something had happened to me with over the course of being exposed to disability arts this experience of yes mutual vulnerability um, having one of my mentors uh, JD Derbyshire say to me you know I'm always here and now every time I run into JD in other disability art spaces they rub the upper part of my back so that I know it's them because I can't see their face and so there's something about I, that softness is something that's so palpable to me within the disability arts community and, and what it allows me personally as an, as an artist and what I see and witness from the other disabled artists that I study and work with is that it allows for us to be able to not conform to normative, mainstream, traditional ways of performance. So yeah, we don't call our, not everybody calls their script a script. It could be a text, it could be the words, it could be something um, and it's not necessarily it doesn't have to fit into this box of non-disabled theater and so that means that as an artist you can you can make really interesting choices so like I will give an example I'm a disability dramaturg which basically means I sit and work with disabled folks to make sure that they're taken care of throughout their creation processes because that's mm -hmm. something that I've noticed is not necessarily prioritized in art industries is care and support for the artist 
Mm-hmm. And we were creating a show early 2020, the last show, the, I, the last theater I was in before <laughs> before the turn. Mm-hmm. And it was with Ophira Kalaf, and, and she is a big uh, power wheelchair user, and it's a massive power wheelchair. And I remember her saying, an hour-long performance is, is too long for her. She said, I'm going right. to get tired halfway through. And mm-hmm. I said, well, why don't we just take a break? Why don't yeah. we write it into the show? We take a break. And then I said, what, mm-hmm. what would make you the most comfortable in mid-show? And she actually said, tilting her wheelchair so her feet are above her head would make her the most comfortable to be the most relaxed. And I said, amazing. Mm-hmm. Let's take seven minutes in the middle of the show and we invite everybody else in the space to take a break. Not like yeah. an intermission, like at Mervish, but just, you know, we're all just going to make sure our bodies are okay. And, you know, it took a couple of performances for the audience to also feel comfortable moving or, you know, participating in that care but that disruption in the space we did not care to make an intermission we just were like this is part of the show and that Mm -hmm. i think is that vulnerability that softness even that interdependence coming into play and it's so powerful when you get to experience that in person or even online and so i think that's where for me i I think it's so important and powerful that this work continues to be bolstered and created and uplifted are you hopeful? I mean, the disability theater and, and theater in general has taken a bit of a, a beating during the pandemic. The arts community has really suffered. But are you hopeful that we've reached a turning point where disability theater won't just be a fringe thing or a speciality type of theater um, or even a form of rehabilitation? You know, you get all the disability people to make arts and crafts. Do you, do you think it'll we've turned a corner where it'll be taken as a serious form of storytelling in theater and performance? I have hope. I have, I have to have hope. Um, because I, 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 again, pun intended, I can see so clearly <laughs> the issues that are within theater as they are now. And I think I have hope because I am a part of this community with so many strong disabled artists. I have hope because I like personally have experienced literal change, like even having Playwrights Canada Press approach me to do this project, a disabled person to do the editing, like that offers hope. Um, it offers hope that theaters like Theater Pass Mirai and um, different theaters downtown that maybe are independent theaters but are still, you know, accessing and providing vibrant storytelling work are committed to making their spaces more accessible, to inviting more people in. And I think, I think why I'm hopeful is because disabled artists are also continuing to work through this, like you say, the, the pandemic, which has kind of devastated both the disability community as well as the arts community. I feel like I have connected with so many disabled artists through this time, through necessity, through resilience, through, through this is what is getting us through. And I think that I have to, I have to hope for that. Um, and I do truly believe through this book, through other work that I do, other work that I see other disability consultants and educators do, that, you know, we will, we will see, hopefully, in the near future, access to all kinds of performances, um, not just one performance that is on the Sunday matinee, but every performance during a run could be offered in accessible ways. And I think that I do have hope. I have hope because I'm about to finish a PhD in theater. Like this is unheard of as mm-hmm. a blind person. And so I think I have to. Um, and I hope that I hope that all the disabled people who could be listening, might be listening, might be experiencing this also continue to have that hope that no, we will we will be living to tell our vibrant stories on these stages soon. We only have a minute left. Where can we pick up a copy of your book? Oh my gosh, everywhere. Playwrights Canada Press Online has uh, accessible copies as well. That's the best place to grab it. Um, they've got ebooks, audiobooks. They've got uh, the physical copies. So Playwrights Canada Press Online would be the number one place. 
Jessica, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thank you so much for reaching out. I really appreciate the time and space. So thank you so much. Jessica Watkin is the editor of Interdependent Magic, Disability Performance in Canada, published by Playwrights Canada Press. And as you heard, you can get a copy on the Playwrights Canada Press website or wherever you get your ebooks and audiobooks. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks a lot for tuning into our program. Sam Robinson is our technical producer, Infinisreen Abdul Majid, and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day.